maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, Connor Boyle here. Just a reminder, you can take your Intelligence Squared experience deeper with Intelligence Squared Premium. You'll get an ad-free feed, one early episode per week, two bonus episodes per month, discounts on Intelligence Squared Plus, priority access to our live in-person events, and access to our premium monthly newsletter. Sign up at iq2premium.supercast.com. Thanks for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm Connor Boyle. It's the Sunday debate, and on this episode, we're revisiting a motion from 2009. Free market capitalism is so 20th century. This week, the British economy was plunged into uncertainty, leaving many sceptical of new Prime Minister Liz Truss and her Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng's plans to grow the economy. After announcing vast tax cuts, a swell in government borrowing and a commitment to do away with economic orthodoxy, Liz Truss and her government were mired in controversy. For some, including the IMF, the tax cuts couldn't be funded and risk the financial stability of the United Kingdom. But for others, including the free market think tanks who have called for greater freedom and less regulations in the economy for years, the announcement was an exciting plan to take the UK economy in a new direction. But what were people thinking about the balance between market and state back in 2009? Well, let's go now to our debate and hear from our host, the impressionist and comedian Rory Bremner. Welcome. 
welcome again to this debate. I know many of you are regulars at these Intelligence Squared debates. Some of you, in fact, uh, this is your second home. Uh, if you're MPs, you would probably claim for it. Uh, <laughs> unless, of course, you were Vince Cable, of course, who wouldn't dream of doing such a thing. But anyway, tonight's debate is just as topical as MPs' expenses. We're going to be debating free market capitalism, um, very timely, and the day, the day that America officially came out of recession. Bastards. Uh, no. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I led this country into recession, ahead of France, ahead of Italy, ahead of Germany, <laughs> able to take advantage of all the benefits of, of early recession, uh, cheaper exports, lower sterling, uh, fewer estate agents. Um, <laughs> they're not... So it is a very, very timely uh, debate, as I say, um, and there are no better speakers than the people that we've got here. They're very, very highly qualified because this has been a subject that's dominated uh, the news for the last uh, two or three years. Thousands of column inches, hundreds of hours of television, scores of books, not least by the people on the panel. In fact, if a bomb were to fall on this hall this evening, heaven forbid, we'd probably have absolutely no clue what's going on in the world of banks. As among the speakers tonight, we've got some of the best analysts and the sharpest minds that are featured in the coverage of this extraordinary period in our economic history. We've got a shadow chancellor, we've got a former prime minister, a BBC journalist, a global analyst, an intellectual entrepreneur, uh, a senior advisor to the French prime minister. So all human life is here. All we're missing is Nick Griffin, um, <laughs> who uh, unfortunately is not able to be with us as he's auditioning for the BBC's Christmas edition of Strictly Come Dancing. <laughs> Very good at the goose step, apparently. Um, now, tonight we come to examine the model of free market capitalism and ask if it's time to consign it to history. I'm going to start by reminding us all of the motion that free market capitalism is so 20th century. Uh, I thought it'd be interesting to look up a, a definition of free market capitalism, um, but it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> Not least because I, I couldn't really understand the definitions, uh, and that was on Wikipedia. But I'm sure the people here will, as, in, uh, as part of their speeches, will be able to give us some idea of what they understand by free market capitalism. A word about the rules. Um, I'll invite the speakers to speak in turn. They will each speak for eight minutes. No longer, please, gentlemen, lady, for eight minutes. Uh, then I will announce the result of the vote that you gave as you came in. Uh, then I'll throw open to the floor. You'll be able to give questions and give comments. And if you could, give your name uh, if it's relevant. And uh, maybe if you want to give extra information, if you come from a particular organization, you can do that. Uh, at the end of that, uh, we'll, we'll have breakfast. Um, <laughs> then we'll have a two-minute summing up from each of the members of the panel in reverse order. And we're going to see them in day wear, evening wear, and swim wear, I think, is it? <laughs> But they will be given two minutes to sum up uh, and make their case. Uh, they'll have to do a very good job because while they're summing up, you will in fact be voting uh, because that's the only way that we can get all the votes together and collated. It's a health and safety thing. We can get them all together and announce the result at the end of the debate. So I hope we're all clear. So now on to the speakers. Now, the first of the speakers will be familiar to you as the economics editor of BBC's Newsnight. He joined Newsnight in 2001 as their business and industry correspondent and took over as economics editor in 2008 with a uh, brief to cover an agenda that he sums up as profit, people, and planet. Uh, he's also a professional musician. Uh, which instrument? Musicology. 
Oh, musicology. <laughs> I beg your pardon. Oh, well, there we are. And he's just been immortalised by David Hare in the new play, The Power of Yes. Um, and his latest book, Meltdown, The End of the Age of Greed, tells the story of the financial collapse from September to October 2008 and argues that the era of neoliberalism is over, appropriately enough. So by kind permission of the National Theatre, please welcome <laughs> to propose the motion that free market capitalism is so 20th century, Paul Mason. Ladies and gentlemen, one day this debate, I think, will move to the same terrain as the climate change debate did, in the sense that people on the top floor of large skyscrapers will come to accept the science, and the initiative will move to them. They will make nuanced and, con and uh, consensual, in a way, contributions to the debate. Uh, and the initiative will move away, in, in a sense, from those hanging by ropes outside the building, dropping banners. This is what happened in the climate change debate. It became nuanced and on the same territory. I think until it does, one is obliged to get the, uh, the breaking ball out, the wrecking ball, and try and just basically ram home what has happened. By free market capitalism, I mean primarily an idea set or ideology which portrays the market either as the perfect or the best mechanism for regulating economic life and promoting growth, and the freer the market, the better it does this. Why do I focus on the ideology? Some of my fellow speakers, I think, will focus more on the actuality. But I focus on the ideology, um, not the actual system, because the actual system itself does not exist. The financial market, which actually exists, is rigged and unfree. It is not transparent. Though much information does flow through it, we have seen in three boom and bust cycles, dot com, commodities and asset-backed securities, that the crucial information is hoarded to the benefit of some and the destruction of others. It is not a free market. The key components of the worldview are a two-dimensional view of humanity in which human beings take so-called rational decisions based on their economic self-interest and expectations. The sum total of these decisions, even when some of them are irrational, is held to create an efficient market. A complex financial market, it is argued, forms the basis for lower risk, higher velocity capitalism. Complexity, in other words, mitigates risk. And the regulator in this system can never know more than the deal participants, and therefore, regulatory intervention can only have, only have a negative effect on the efficiency of the market. I have probably missed a few bullet points out, but that, to me, is the basic premise. I think it's worth adding uh, what Ayn Rand specifically added to this uh, theory, which is an emotional commitment to amorality and inequality. Because Rand and her disciple, Alan Greenspan, uh, I think subscribed to this, puts these words into the mouth of the hero of Atlas Shrugged, John Galt, addressing America's capitalists. Since childhood, you have been hiding the guilty secret that you feel no desire to be moral. Accept the fact that the achievement of your happiness is the only moral purpose of your life. As a basic step of self-esteem, learn to treat as a mark of a cannibal any man's demand for your help. Now, the reason I associate Ayn Rand's uh, words here with that theory is not by sort of guilt by association. This book is piled up and given away free at venture capital meetings. Um, it is the ideology of free markets. Now, the reason it's destined to be replaced uh, is because it's been proved wrong empirically. Indeed, myopic adherence to the worldview arguably played a large part in causing the meltdown. 
It's becoming recognized now even by market participants. That is, not academics, journalists, people who want to be part of the ideological debate. Paul McCulley, the MD of PIMCO, the world's biggest bond fund manager, said last month, look, the guiding model of market, for market participants for the last 30 years has not failed, but it is seriously flawed because it does not factor in the key element of human nature. It should be no shock that the worldview has collapsed. It was already under intense intellectual scrutiny. Joe Stiglitz wins the Nobel Prize for pointing out that the information flowing between participants in the markets uh, is not equal. It is always asymmetric. The policy toolkit derived from the worldview was summed up in John, Williams, John Williamson's famous 1989 checklist, The Washington Consensus. Now, as early as 2002, Williamson himself recognised that the policy prescriptions based on this checklist had failed, had become, as he put it, an ideology, a thought economising device, he said. It's failed because it failed, it, because it failed to warn about crisis. Nassim Nicholas Taleb's critique of mathematical models and abstractions that the market participants used has also now gained legendary status. So it's not as if there is no intellectual basis for saying there was already a critique. But thanks to the meltdown of 2008, the free market worldview now, I argue, comes under the scrutiny of established facts. We know now that the investment bankers who preached to us and to each other and to the politicians the doctrine of the infallible free market were not running a free market. In the dot-com bubble of 1998-2001, investment bank analysts systematically gamed the markets to the benefit of themselves and the banks and the detriment of retail investors. In 2003, the SEC issued fines and compensation orders totaling $1.4 billion on 10 Wall Street banks, each of which had systematically misled investors. Then came Enron. 2003, the SEC fines JP Morgan, Chase, and Citigroup a total of $255 million for their role in the Enron scandal. They had designed transactions whose complexity, quotes, had no business purposes, purpose, aside from masking the fact that, in substance, they were loans. They, they, they duped people. Finally, come to the latest boom, boom and bust. CDOs and RMBS and all the rest of it eventually became bad loans. Bad luck. Stuff happens. That's not a catastrophe. The catastrophe is that, it was, that this was able to be hidden inside a system that nobody knew existed. The shadow banking system you will have heard of, the term, as far as I'm concerned, was only coined in retrospect in 2007. It was a series of off-balance sheet structures modelled legally this time and with great care to avoid illegality, but essentially on the, on the principle of pushing off-balance sheet the liabilities. One minute, Paul. Dot-com. Enron, the banking crisis, is there a pattern here? Yes, in, at each moment something went wrong inside in the financial system and the people who were supposed to see it didn't, including the media. And if you go to the heart of what was wrong is that the two-dimensional model could not take account of the basic fact. In the financial system, the powerful were putting one over on the powerless, in a market where the business advantage is always with those who have information and greater information. I argue, therefore, that the ideology, the ideology I have tried to describe, and which has almost been a patina over reality, not only misdescribes reality, but helped crash the system. That is why it, it deserves to be so 20th century. Thank you.
Thank you. Now, uh, Jean said to me earlier on he has some trouble with some English accents. Uh, so if he couldn't understand some of the questions, would I translate for him? Um, I'm afraid I can't translate the last eight minutes of what Paul has to say. Um, except to say that, uh, as Paul said, the free market doesn't exist. It's not a free market. It has an emotional attachment to immorality. It's been proved wrong, and it's seriously flawed. To oppose that motion, can I call on the first speaker, Stephen King, who is the Group Chief Economist and Global Head of Economics and Asset Allocation Research at HSBC. HSBC, of course, stands for He Saw the Boom, the Bust Coming, I should say. <laughs> as they, they've come out of it rather well. Uh, he's directly responsible for HSBC's global economic coverage and coordinates the research of HSBC economists all over the world. And he writes a weekly column for The Independent, one of the UK's leading newspapers, it says here. Most recently, <laughs> became a member of the FT's Economists Forum. To oppose the motion that free market capitalism is so 20th century, please welcome Stephen King. Well, uh, thank you very much, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I, I realize that I have a, a somewhat difficult task this evening. First of all, I am an economist, and economists have got things pretty badly wrong over the last three or four years. Uh, secondly, I work for a bank, and I'm aware that uh, some people are not particularly fond of banks at the moment. Um, and thirdly, um, unlike Vince Cable, I've not been canonized as yet, so I haven't got a contact with the, with the Almighty, which might help me out in some of these answers. Now, it seems to me that uh, when you talk about um, free market capitalism being so 20th century, that is absolutely completely wrong. It is, in fact, um, so 19th century. Um, we're <laughs> actually talking about the wrong century. Um, and the reason for saying that is that back in the 19th century, uh, government was minimal. It was tiny. It didn't really exist in any significant way. Uh, in fact, at the beginning of the First World War, just before the First World War, the share of public spending um, in the UK was about 13% of national income. Um, in Germany and France, it was about 10 or 11% of national income. Um, and in the US, it was a tiny 8% of national income. Um, over the last 100 years or so, there has been the most dramatic change. Uh, the advance of the state has been one of the biggest single themes that's come through over the last 100 years. Uh, so the equivalent figures for now um, in the UK, um, particularly next year and the year after, uh, following many, many years of big public spending increases, public spending was about 50% um, of national income. Uh, the same figures apply to Germany and France. Uh, Sweden will be up at about 60% or so. Um, and as for the US, that bastion of free market capitalism, up to about 35% or so. So not quite as big as the others, but nevertheless a huge change uh, that's taken place um, over the last 100 years. So, if free market capitalism ever really existed, it was back in the 19th century and not in the 20th century. I also seem to recall from uh, reading history books that there were various other events in the 20th century that moved us away from um, free market capitalism. For example, I believe there was a Russian revolution in 1917, and thereafter there wasn't much of a free market um, in the Soviet Union. I think also there was a civil war in China in the late 1940s, and after that, there wasn't much of a capitalist economy in China. There was all sorts of things like the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, but none of those count um, as being free market capitalists. So it seems to me that through the course of the 20th century, there has been a dramatic change. It's been actually away from free markets uh, towards much more government intervention. And even in those dark years of Mrs. T, when she was cutting spending like crazy, uh, the share of public spending um, in the UK came down to only about 35%. So it came down quite a long way, but it's gone up quite a long way um, since then. 
My second point um, deals with a key issue, I guess, tonight, which is whether bankers are bastards. Um, and um, I'm aware that um, some of them are indeed bastards. I wouldn't like to include myself in that particular category. But um, it strikes me that bankers have been bastards not just over the course of the last 10 or 20 years, but over the last four or 500 years. So you go back to the, the tulip uh, bubble in Holland in 1637. There were plenty of uh, financial whiz kids around at the time who made lots of money um, at the expense of others. You had, roughly speaking, 11 banking crises in the 18th century another 18 or so in the 19th century. There was a major crisis in the US in 1907, in 1929, uh, the savings and loans crisis in the 1980s, and of course the Japanese crisis has been really going on for many, many years. Um, the peculiarity over the course of the last um, 10 or 20 years has perhaps been that governments themselves chose to ignore this uh, rather um, um, unpleasant behavior of bankers in the past and pretended that somehow things would uh, rectify themselves automatically. But also, I think that governments had a vested interest in making sure that the bankers were looked after. And there are two themes here. The first one in the US was that under the Clinton administration and under the Bush administration, there was a tremendous desire to try and improve the numbers of people who owned their homes, uh, a desire to increase home ownership dramatically over a relatively short space of time. And guess what? In the process of trying to deliver that political ideal, uh, they ended up with the featherlight touch in terms of uh, the treatment of bankers. Uh, far uh, too little regulation, in fact, over the course of the last 20 years. And the other example of this um, is, of course, the UK over the last 10 years or so, where I think the government was really not keen to kill the golden goose, which was the key source of revenues, uh, to allow huge increases in public spending to come through. And we shouldn't forget the fact that all the increases in spending in education and health and all the things that have come through um, over the last few years have critically depended um, on tremendous tax revenues coming in from the city, uh, from financial services in general. Now, it may be the wrong policy not to have dealt with these excesses in the city, but I think the incentive not to deal with them was actually very strong for the simple reason that the government benefited uh, in the sense that it had stronger revenue growth coming through um, over a period of time. Uh, thirdly, in terms of where we're going in the future, it strikes me that rather than seeing uh, less capitalism um, in the future, we'll actually see more capitalism. But the source of capitalism will not be um, the US, it will not be the UK, it will not be parts of Europe. It will increasingly be countries to the east of where we are currently. Uh, think about what's happened in China um, over the course of the last 10 or 20 years. Uh, following the reforms of Deng Xiaoping in the 1980s, China has changed dramatically from being a closed communist country uh, with absolutely no growth coming through at all to becoming increasingly a dynamic economy. I'm not sure if it's quite free market capitalism, but it's capitalism of a kind. There is a linkage between China and the rest of the world that wasn't there uh, 20 or 30 years ago. It's a huge change that's come through. Think about the changes in, say, India um, or parts of uh, Latin America. Again, huge changes coming through, which are creating a new form of capitalism, uh, creating new connections in terms of trade, capital flows, and all the rest of the things we take uh, for granted in the West. It's really changing other parts of the world. So my point really here is very simple, that over the course of the last uh, few years, yes, capitalism has come into some kind of crisis in the West. It's actually growing extremely rapidly in other parts of the world. It'll grow in the future. The rest of the world will get bigger. Maybe the West will shrink. Uh, but at the same time, capitalism is here and here to stay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen King there.
saying that free capitalism was, in fact, 19th century. Uh, the government has benefited greatly from it. And in the next century, we're likely to see uh, market capitalism be even freer than it was uh, in this century. To support the motion, can I call on our third speaker? When I saw his name, I assumed that it was a spelling mistake. And at last, I had a relative somewhere who knows something about the world of finance. In fact, he's an academic, an entrepreneur, a thinker, a writer, an author of many books, including The, the J-Curve, A New Way to Understand How Nations Rise and Fall. We're still working on, on the G-Curve. Uh, he has a particular interest in states in transition, global political risk, and American foreign policy, and keeps a close eye on emerging markets. So he's frighteningly well qualified uh, to support the motion that free market capitalism is so 20th century. Ian Bremmer. Well, free market capitalism certainly is so 20th century, especially the second half of the 20th century. I mean, this is the part of time when multinational corporations were becoming increasingly the world's dominant economic actors, taking advantage of global economies of scale, global capital flows, access to global consumer markets, and global labor markets. Now, let me put my cards on the table for you. I happen to like free market capitalism. It's certainly done good by me. I mean, I was born in 69, and I'm an American. But I have to be honest with you. Um, the world is moving on. We aren't moving on, mind you. The, the point is that the world is increasingly not us. Now, a few months ago, I was in New York, and I got a call uh, from the protocol office of the Chinese mission. And it turned out that the vice minister of foreign affairs was coming into town, wanted to know if I was available. Thankfully, I was in town. We got together. We exchanged pleasantries. And then he asked me the first question. He said, Ian, he said, now that the free market has failed, what do you believe the appropriate role of the state in the economy should be? <laughs> now, Stephen said he's not sure that the increasingly dominant Chinese model of capitalism is free market capitalism. I can tell you that um, the first vice minister of foreign affairs is quite sure. It's not free market capitalism. It's state capitalism. It's capitalism where the state is the principal actor and arbiter of the economy. And my response to the vice minister was, well, you know, just because the self-regulation of banks turned out to be not the best economic system in the world does not mean that the absence of rule of law and the absence of an independent judiciary and the existence of the state as the principal arbiter and actor in the economy is a better economic system, though it is politically expedient. <laughs> so over 90 minutes, we kind of got to hear Okay, But we did not get to here. We weren't going to get to here. And my point is, a month ago, President Obama was in Pittsburgh at the G20, and he announced, as only an American president could, the G8 is over. And the G20 is the way the world is now working. Now, the G8 was messy. If you talk to Sherpas that were involved in the G8, they would tell you that um, it was a system that you had to manage a lot of egos and different views on regulation, national culture, and all the rest. It was like herding cats. Now, the G20 should be even harder. Herding even more cats would be much more difficult. But the G20 isn't like herding more cats. The G20 is herding cats 
and animals that don't like cats. <laughs> and that's not actually hurting, okay? So what we need to recognize, the system of state capitalism, which is, is, is where a number of these economies are heading, and it's not just China, it's Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, it's Russia as well. These are systems where national oil corporations, state-owned enterprises, privately owned national champions, and sovereign wealth funds are increasingly powerful. They're not dominant, they're merely increasingly powerful, but they are challenging the model of free market capitalism in the United States, Great Britain, and the developed world. That is a world that will be more challenging for all of us. It is certainly not a century of free market capitalism. We had that, we had it for the first few years of the 21st century, so I'll give Stephen that. But as of 2009, it's a different place. Now, I'm from New York, and it is clear to me, New York used to be the financial capital of the world for a time. It's no longer even the financial capital of the United States. Washington is. Right? And that's true in a lot of places as power has shifted from the commercial to the political capitals. We used to talk about the Shanghai faction, no more. Now it's Beijing. We used to go and invest in Dubai because they had shiny buildings, no more. Now it's Abu Dhabi. Dubai is falling apart and only sustaining itself through Abu Dhabi's largesse in Dubai. Um, but my point is actually in the United States, in Britain, in France, it's still basically the free market. The United States isn't gonna own everything. Even if they stay in GM for a long time, even if Citigroup doesn't pay back all this money anytime soon, you're still talking about a country where the most dominant economic actors are indeed the private sector, no question. The pendulum swung too far in the United States. The bankers went out of control, we all know that. Now the pendulum will swing too far in the other direction, and people like Rush Limbaugh will say Obama's a socialist. At the end of the day, the US will end up looking a little more like France than it used to. But in the context of the world that we live in, it doesn't matter. You are rearranging deck tears on the Titanic. The real point is that you have an evolution from a free market capitalism system, system, sometimes more regulated, sometimes less, to a world where you have a free market system and a state capitalist system, that is a world that has less economic growth, it is a world where you see regionalization of capital flows instead of globalization, and it's a world where multinational corporations trying to do global business are increasingly challenged. Okay, final point. That's where we are now, but if we talk about the 21st century, what about later? Don't we eventually win, right? <laughs> I, I think we do. I really do. But my friends at Goldman Sachs tell me China does. The BRICS, according to them, will be the world's largest economies in 2050. China becomes more powerful than the U.S. economically around 2035, 2040. I have a secret for you. Don't listen to Goldman Sachs, okay? They have no idea, neither do we. The world's moving very fast. We get to 2050, I can paint you all sorts of scenarios with climate change, disruption and catastrophe, with nuclear proliferation and terrorism. I can show you authoritarian states taking off. I can show you free markets winning and consumerism becoming rampant. That is placing a wet finger in the wind. All of us can do that. But as for the future we can actually project, 
free market capitalism is so 20th century. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, uh, Ian. Can I just clarify one point? When he said herding cats, was that herding cats with a D or hurting cats? I couldn't... As you wish. Did you know which was it? Okay. It was herding with a D. Herding with a D. It was. It was. I understand that. Yes. Right. Okay. Yes. My mind wandered onto a different plane there. Uh, so, thank you. Ian Bremer there, who, who likes free, free capitalism, but the world is moving on. Its power is shifting from the commercial to the political, and it's so 20th century. Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. If you don't already know, we've launched Intelligence Squared Premium. It's an exciting new way to take your Intelligence Squared experience to the next level so you can make the most informed decisions about the issues that matter in the company of the world's greatest minds and speakers. Crucially, it lets us produce even more amazing podcasts for you, as well as running some more live events and big debates. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify, for just $4.99 a month. Sign up now at iq2premium.supercast.com Com. That's IQ, the numeral two, premium.supercast.com, or see the link in the description. Thank you for all your support. Uh, our next speaker to oppose the motion uh, is probably the most senior member we have on the panel, is uh, the Right Honourable Kim, Kim Campbell, who served as Canada's 19th and first female Prime Minister in 1993. Uh, one of a number of firsts, she was also the first woman in Canada to hold the justice and defence portfolios, and the first woman to be Defence Minister of a NATO country. To list her achievements since would take me longer than the time that she's allocated to speak, which is in fact eight minutes. Um, you can go on her website, she told me about it earlier, kimcampbell.com, to find out the amazing wealth of experience and, and things that she shares around the world. For the moment, though, she's going to oppose the, moment, the, the motion. Would you please welcome the Right Honourable Kim Campbell. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be introduced to a British audience when I'm introduced in the United States as the Right Honourable Kim Campbell. I'm always asked, and is there a Left Honourable? Um, <laughs> But this discussion makes me very nostalgic for my days as a graduate student in Soviet government at the London School of Economics in the early 1970s. As you may recall, in those days, it was still intellectually respectable to be a Marxist. And um, many of my uh, Marxist friends and some of our colleagues, including the father of the current foreign minister here, I think, um, used to complain that uh, Lenin and Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong had given Marx a bad name because what they represented and what they had created bore no relationship whatsoever to Marx's actual views and nobody had actually really given Marxism a chance and it was therefore extremely rude to be critical and to say it was of no value. And I am coming to the same view, uh, the same sort of sense of defensiveness about the works of Adam Smith. Because it seems to me that the works of Adam Smith and Adam Smith's analysis really gets lost in the shuffle when we talk about free market capitalism. Because people talk about the market without, and they invoke his name without really actually ever having read him. Uh, many of his strongest defenders, the people who will speak most loudly in public uh, fora in defense of the free market, are in fact uh, the, among those who are working hardest to subvert the free market and to make sure that it does not function in the way that Adam Smith uh, had in mind. And to use, I must say, with all due respect to uh, my colleagues on the other side of this motion, to use Ayn Rand as some 
moral lodestone for what it means to be a free market capitalist is really clutching at straws. She certainly bore no resemblance whatsoever to Adam Smith, who was a deeply moral person. Adam Smith, and you may notice that my name is Campbell, was a product of the Scottish Enlightenment. And the Scottish Enlightenment was deeply committed to notions of public morality. And they didn't think they came from religion. They believed that public morality came from what they called fellow feeling, which is really another way of saying kind of the underlying philosophy of the golden rule, fellow feeling, a sense of empathy. Therefore, for Adam Smith, it was absolutely inconceivable that the efficiencies of the market which he so correctly identified as enabling the thousands of inchoate decisions that need to be made every day to make an economy work, and which can never be made effectively by government, which can never be made effectively in command economies, but that those decisions should be made in the context of a moral vacuum with no rule that people should abandon their responsibilities of citizenship to create and, and, and not create uh, ethical, moral, legal frameworks within which the market decisions would be made is absolutely anathema and quite unacceptable and very much uh, not in keeping with the intellectual uh, underpinnings of free market capitalism. We, we've heard about the importance of state ownership. Uh, on the one hand, how uh, my colleague on, on my side of the motion has commented that state ownership uh, or state participation in the economy has grown, but also this concern that there is state capitalism in China and that this is a bad thing. We all had state capitalism in the 20th century. You know, privatization of state enterprises is really something that's an artifact of, say, about the 1980s on. It was New Zealand that really started it. Many countries, which are now among the most advanced industrial economies, uh, free market capitalist countries, had large sectors of public ownership. Britain, coal mines, steel industry, Canada, Air Canada was privatized when my party was in government. And so the notion that a country that is moving from communism with, with zero underpinnings, zero tradition of the rule of law, none of those ethical concepts that Adam Smith thought were, were so important for free market capitalism, with none of those in their society, that they should want to move slowly, that they should be reluctant and afraid to give up the role of the state, is perfectly understandable, but it doesn't mean that that is sustainable. One of the things we talk about with free market capitalism is the, the, it's, it's the two sides of the coin of capitalism and democracy. We need to have the rule of law, an independent judiciary, the capacity of accountable governments to make fair rules and to, and to reassess decisions that they've made if they turn out not to be economically productive or not to work well. But the countries that are trying to liberalize their economies without those kinds of political changes are doomed to fail. China has just opened another stock market. China wants to, wants to create that opportunity for ordinary Chinese to put their capital in to invest in companies. Some of the strongest grassroots movements in China are about environmental protection, our complaints against pollution and the effects of them. People will not be silent forever. And so to say that the vice premier of China is having his little moment of triumph because of the, the, the crisis of the banks, which is a reflection of our failure to do what we were supposed to do, uh, is a temporary moment of triumph. It does not mean that the Chinese model has won. The notion of, of making, making the market fair, that's one of the most fundamental roles of government. And we sometimes assume that the United States is, in the, is a model. And if you're a Canadian, it's really aggravating. Incidentally, we did not have. <laughs> 
we did not have a bank meltdown in Canada, if you are looking for a safe place to invest your money, might I suggest Canadian banking stocks? Our <laughs> banks, which were not deregulated according to the American opponent of the 1990s, are awash in cash. And my guess is that any lucky shareholder is bound to get a big juicy dividend before too long. So, uh, you know, I don't, uh, I'll give you the normal disclosures that you get at the bottom of the, the uh, information you get from your financial advisors, but you might just check the papers yourself. But the point is that governments have always understood the need to regulate to create the context. In the United States, Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt in the early 20th century, went after the trusts, broke them up. Why? Because they interfered with the fair operation of the market. They were anti-market. Franklin Roosevelt brought in the Glass-Steagall, signed the Glass-Steagall Act, went after problems with the bank. John F. Kennedy, John Charles Kennedy, brought in legislation or signed legislation about truth in advertising. The market cannot function if you are allowed to lie through your teeth and misrepresent uh, your products. Richard Nixon created the Environmental Protection Agency. People are entitled to know the quality of, of food, the quality of, of, uh, of, 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 the, of the water that they drink. They're entitled to be protected. Why? Because otherwise they can't make fair decisions. In China, at the moment, they do have a concern about the environment. And in China, if you put melamine in your products, you will not be sued and find large sums of money. You will go before a firing squad. But someday, China also will have the opportunity for people to uh, go to jail and pay damages when they do such things. Did Ronald Reagan undo Medicare? He talked about it as the end of the world, that it was socialism. Of course he didn't, because some aspects of policy, some aspects of exchange don't belong in the market. The meltdown was a crisis in governance. And as I said, it's not, uh, it doesn't happen in, everywhere. Uh, there are countries like Canada where we didn't have the banking crisis, and we actually have a higher level of home, of home ownership uh, than they do in the United States. The underlying idea of free market capitalism is build a better mousetrap and the world will beat a path to your door. Free market capitalism is not only a way that democratizes people's ability to participate by sharing their small capital, uh, by accumulating it with others and participating in the market, participating in product. It's also a way of stimulating innovation. It provides the American economist Robert Fogel, who is the expert on uh, 19th century American economy. Many people believe that the 19th century economy grew because of investments in infrastructure. It was not infrastructure. As Fogel won the Nobel Prize for identifying that it was innovation. Capitalist, free market capitalist countries are the ones where innovations have the best chance of getting a place in the marketplace, of being seen, being financed, and becoming part of making our lives better. One and so I would, just, I would just say, we've heard about the problems that have occurred in the United States. Not all free market capitalist countries have those problems, and perhaps, the, and the Bush administration undid all of the good things that the other, his predecessors had done in order to try and regulate uh, uh, the fairness of the market. And perhaps the United States should have socialism, but I think the rest of us can be trusted to be capitalists. Thank you. Well, that's the way to do it. The Right Honourable Kim Campbell, not only congratulations for speaking for exactly eight and a half minutes, but for getting about 17 minutes worth of speech into those eight and a half. Um, wonderful. Not only is uh, free market capitalism suitable for the 21st century, but it has a deep morality, and she believes in it so strongly that we should leave here and immediately buy Canadian bank shares. So there we are. A final uh, speech 
proposing the motion, would you please welcome our next speaker, Jean Pisani Ferry, who is director and co-founder of a Brussels-based economic think tank, a French professor of economics at the University of Paris-Dauphine. He was previously economic advisor at the European Commission. He's been the senior advisor to the Minister of Finance and executive president of the French Prime Minister's Council of Economic Analysis, 2001-2002. Would you please welcome to propose the motion, Jean Pisani Ferry. <clears throat> Th thank you, thank you. Uh, we, we all have uh, handicaps here. Uh, mine is, uh, is to be French and to speak uh, for the motion. I have uh, <laughs> as, many ch as many chances to surprise you as would a bishop uh, trying to explain uh, why you should believe in God. So uh, it's, um, it, it's a difficult situation. But I, I'm also an economist, and economists spend large part of their time explaining other people why markets can work and why markets do work, uh, that um, uh, people are not just robots and that they're intelligent people and that government may fail sometimes. So my culture, my professional culture is much more on the side of, uh, of, uh, of markets. Um, I think we should be uh, clear about the question. I mean, the, there are several questions we're discussing. One is what we would wish to happen. One is what we think may or will, will happen. And I think that's very much the second question we're debating today. Uh, and in this respect, I think the, the, the question, I mean, uh, uh, you were very right to say um, that free market capitalism was, was 19th century. The, the question uh, I think we, we have in front of us is whether what we've seen over the last 25, 30 years uh, developing in all our countries uh, is going to, to, to change or, or whether this wave of liberalization, belief in market is going to, to stay with us after the, the crisis. Um, it has been an extraordinary change. I mean, that we, what we've seen uh, all starting perhaps with uh, Deng Xiaoping's reform, with the election of Mrs. Thatcher, or with the fall of the Berlin Wall. There is a 10 years lag uh, here. Uh, and that has uh, changed fundamentally the way we look at uh, economies, market policies. And I think behind that there was an intellectual argument, uh, there was a policy priority, and there was a social trend. The intellectual argument was the uh, um, challenge to the view that government uh, are always uh, benevolent and, and well-informed. That was very much the, the view prevalent in the, in the afterward uh, period. Um, I think the, the, the policy priority was to enlist market forces to, uh, uh, to, to, to tear down borders, to erode rents, uh, to increase efficiency, and that has uh, been a, a very much a driving force during all that period. And the social trend, I think we should not neglect that, was that it was uh, the, the baby boomers coming uh, to, uh, to the age where they had aspiration of, uh, of individual freedom, of individualism. They were not at ease with the kind of hierarchical organized societies we had. And they saw uh, a kind of uh, congruence between, uh, between uh, economic liberalism and, and, and their own uh, aspiration. Um, so the question is whether this is, uh, this is still with us for the, for the years and the, the decades to come. And here, I think the, the, the crisis may be, may be a, a watershed. Uh, because, uh, first of all, in the intellectual argument, uh, this very notion that um, markets can uh, uh, self-organize, uh, that markets are 
uh, essentially better institutions than government, uh, governments uh, is, a, is a notion that has been uh, profoundly challenged by the crisis. I think the truth is that markets and government are imperfect institutions, both. Uh, and that we can't, uh, we can't say we trust market and we distrust government as very much the, the mood was in the, at the, the end of the, of the last century. Uh, we're very much in a situation where we have, we know we have a combination of imperfect private or public institutions and that we have to combine uh, uh, both in a, in, in a way that, uh, that uh, promotes uh, uh, social uh, collective values. Um, so that's, a, that's a, I think, a profound change in, in terms of intellectual argument. In terms of priorities, uh, our big challenges are more that we are coming to an economy of scarcity, we are coming uh, in an economy where climate change is an absolutely uh, major issue, and you know, if you think a bit about what markets can do for climate change, they can do a lot. Markets can be extremely efficient ways to organize uh, the, the, the fight against climate change, but market left alone, that would mean that the unborn poor would be able to pay for the uh, living rich uh, to uh, um, give them an incentive to reduce their, their, their emission. Uh, that's something that is, in my view, unlikely to happen. Uh, uh, so uh, for that very reason, uh, governments, uh, public institutions have to step in, and that changes quite significantly the environment we, we're in. As to the, the social trends, um, well, the most significant one is that we are all aging. Uh, and that's the, 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 the attitude uh, of aging societies vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, -vis government, vis-a-vis -vis what provide you with some form of insurance, uh, is probably not the same as the attitude of younger people who uh, consider that uh, on their own they can prosper and uh, that they don't need the government for, for that. Also, I think the... Um, the tolerance to inequality we have demonstrated, which was very, very high in recent uh, uh, years, in very recent decades, uh, in the name of the, uh, the gains for everybody that this inequality could, could bring, well, you know, whatever uh, um, accumulation of wealth there is, maybe I benefit from it, and so I, I accept it. That uh, is likely also to, to, to change as a consequence of what we've seen. So I think there's uh, a number of forces go in a, in a, in a direction that will shape uh, our future uh, differently from, from what we've seen over the last uh, 30 years. Maybe the kind, this kind of realignment that takes place every quarter of a century or, or, or so. Uh, then we can ask, you know, is it desirable or, or, or not? Uh, and certainly some, some part of it is, 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 not, uh, is not desirable at all. The fact that... Uh, you know, we are uh, we're an economy of, of scarcity, that uh, we're competing for resources, that state, state capitalist uh, entities are competing for resources on a world scale. That's something I'm, I'm happy with. I would very much prefer that everybody can rely on a market, a liquid market, for, for getting your resources, that uh, it's a multilateral order, that's something that's not dominated by politics. But that's, I think, the situation uh, we, we, we're in. Um, so uh, there are some, some elements I, I, would not, uh, I would not regret. I think the, the argument, the intellectual argument in favor of the market self-regulation was uh, uh, certainly overdone. And I wouldn't regret the fact that we've, we're coming to some sort of better balance here and the recognition that uh, markets are also uh, imperfect institution. 
but certainly that would not uh, lead me to uh, consider simply that uh, this future is a bright uh, future that we should all rejoice about. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Jean Pisani Ferry. Ooh, is that a telephone? I should have said, uh, if anyone else has a telephone, that was very well timed, or was that time to go off when you finish your speech? Well, ring me when I finish my speech. That's very, very good. That's well, 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 but whether or not you win the debate tonight, you certainly win the award for best speech in a foreign language. So congratulations. Um, <laughs> unless you include Paul. Yes, you're quite right. Um, <laughs> well spotted. And now, finally, to oppose the motion, um, if we're living through uh, the economic equivalent of the Blitz, then Vince Cable is Vera Lynn. Um, <laughs> Liberal Democrat, uh, Shadow Chancellor for the Exchequer, MP for Twickenham since 1997. What a great year that was. Um, was previously Chief Economist at Shell and Head of Economics at Chatham House. Second only to Robert Peston as the man who knows about the banking crisis and actually understands some of it. He has repeatedly warned of the dangers of the current system and the high levels of personal debt in the United Kingdom. His book, The Storm, The World Economic Crisis and What It Means, has been a bestseller and is available in the foyer. Um, no, it's not. I just made that up. I'm sorry. Um, actually, you could have a book off with the panel. With your, the amount of publications there are on this, on this, uh, on this panel is unbelievable. Um, He's been described as the government's most trenchant economic critic, the MP who gives politicians a good name, and most memorably by Andrew Marr, who described him as the affable Cassandra. Um, I'm kind of surprised that he's on this side of the debate, but then uh, I think he is as well, but we'll see what he makes of it. <laughs> to perform the difficult task of opposing the motion that free market capitalism is so 20th century, will you please welcome the Right Honourable Vince Cable. Well, perhaps I should start by addressing that question directly for those people who are wondering, or indeed worrying, why I'm on this side of the argument. Um, and I'll resort to a couple of quotations, or near quotations, from a couple of liberals, uh, one of whom was Churchill, who of course was a liberal for much of his life, and I think said, and certainly is often quoted as saying, that democracy was the worst system of government ever invented apart from all the others. Uh, and you can put uh, free market capitalism into that sentence, and it expresses pretty much what I feel about it. What are the alternative models? I mean, what are they? I mean, Paul Mason didn't try to offer us one, and uh, Ian and Mr. Bazzani, I think, predicted rather than advocated. What is the alternative model? I mean, we've had planned socialism, communism, collapsed. On China, it's mutated into a form of capitalism. We had fascism that was horrible and failed. And we've had theocratic governments, which don't work. Uh, we've had pre-capitalist poverty and underdevelopment that doesn't work for those who live in it. So what are the models? What are the alternatives? We haven't heard. And I'll quote another liberal, which was Keynes. And um, he, of course, advanced the argument that there are important occasions when governments need to intervene uh, to prevent mass unemployment. And he was asked why he wasn't a socialist or a communist and why he was a liberal. And he said he saw his role as being... Uh, protecting capitalism from its own follies and failures and not destroying it. 
fundamentally important argument, and that's where I'm coming from. I'm an economically liberal social democrat. That's why I'm on this side of the argument. Perhaps I should have another quote from a great thinker, George W. Bush, <laughs> uh, which was, uh, it was prompted by hearing Mr. Pisani, uh, because um, I think George W. Bush is, is believed to have said, uh, why is there no such thing as a word in the French language for entrepreneur? <laughs> and, uh, And uh, that's the other reason I'm on this side of the argument. I'm in favor of entrepreneurs and against George W. Bush. But anyway, the, the, a key argument in this side of the argument is, is and I think Mr. Bizzani and I are actually pretty much in the same position, that um, free market capitalism is, is not laissez-faire. It doesn't have to be laissez-faire. And I go back, as Kim Campbell did, to Adam Smith, who actually laid the intellectual foundations for free market capitalism. Incidentally, Adam Smith got a lot of his ideas from the French. The, the French have forgotten about it, and we have. Um, but Kenet, Turgot, it was the, the French, actually, who invented ideas of Anglo-Saxon capitalism. Anyway, uh, what he advocated was a role for the state, the rule of law, justice, infrastructure prompted by the state. Uh, compulsory education at the end of the 18th century. I mean, this is free market capitalism. And of course there's a role for public goods. Of course there's a role for government intervention. And Smith would have abhorred, I, I had to reread the Wealth of Nations for a lecture I'm doing. I mean, he ab abhorred the kind of practice that Paul, Marshall, uh, Paul, Paul Mason quite rightly condemned. Uh, the bankers who get bonuses while depending on state guarantees, you know, the, the magic circles of investment bankers and lawyers and accountants. I mean, this, he would have deplored that utterly. He would have said the answer is you get those big banks and you break them up and you make them compete. And that is, you know, you don't accept it, you break them up and you operate within a free market framework to, to deal with it. But of course there are big market failures, we know that. And Mr. Pisani quite correctly referred to massive, um, what economists call externalities, you know, the problems of climate change and environment. But the, the big contributors to pollution, of course, capitalist enterprises contribute to it, but the biggest polluters in the past have often been the big state enterprises in former Soviet Union, Northeast China. Uh, much of the worst pollution is a product of poverty. The most inefficient forms of heating are charcoal burners in, in villages in Indian Africa. And, and the answers, as I think Mr. Pisani conceded, you know, markets are an important ally in combating environmental pollution. You know, whether it's uh, cap and trade systems that we're now developing in the European Union, or the kind of arrangement that are used to protect elephants in, in, in parts of Africa using markets and empowering people by giving them incentives. And I also believe that free market capitalism is fully compatible with fairness and a, and a big element of redistribution. You can use public goods, education, health, redistributive taxation. The countries that I admire most are Scandinavian countries like Finland and Sweden and Denmark that are entrepreneurial, very business-oriented, governments don't tell business which industries should produce what, they're free trading, but they have a strong commitment to equality and strong public services, and that's what I want, and that's what I believe is compatible with free market capitalism. But I'm not defensive about it, and I think my concluding comments are these. There will be, in the future, 
a very strong need to harness what free market capitalism has to offer. One of the reasons is that as a result of this crisis, there will be enormous pressures to resort to economic nationalism. We saw it in the 1930s. There are strong pressures building up in the United States, in China, in the European Union to close borders, to protect jobs at home by shutting out foreigners. The, the basic dynamic of free trade, which has lifted the standards of living of people over the last few decades, lift hundreds of million people out of poverty, is under threat, and we should defend it. And the enemies are those people who resort to state capitalist arguments for obstructing international markets. The other reason, which is very positive, very important, we've got rising unemployment in this country. It's going to continue to rise. We've got massive poverty in many other countries. Who is going to employ unemployed people? Governments can help. Of course they can. You know, they manage the economy properly. But it is small businesses and entrepreneurs who actually create wealth and create employment. My constituency, Southwest London, is full of clever people who have had an idea in creative industries, in IT and whatever. They set up a company, they produce, they sell it in the market, and that's the kind of knowledge-based industry that is going to drive our economy forward. It's about entrepreneurship, it's about competition, it's about markets. And in developing countries, the same is true. It's small peasant farmers and small-scale businesses who will actually drive China and India and the rest to the kind of living standards that they quite reasonably expect. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Vince Cable there, who managed to quote Adam Smith Churchill, Keynes, and George W. Bush, so quite an achievement. Uh, capitalism is the worst system apart from all the others, essentially. Uh, well, it's now time to throw it to the floor, but not before uh, I've given you the result of the vote that was taken when you first came in. Uh, the motion, remember, free market capitalism is so 20th century. Now, before the debate, for the motion, there were 178 votes. Against the motion, 281 votes. And don't know, 156. After the debate, for the motion, 162. Against the motion, 419. And 35 don't knows. So the motion has been defeated. So, there's only time for me to thank all of our speakers, Paul, Ian, Jean, Stephen, Kim, and Vince, and look forward to the next debate. Join us here again in a few weeks' time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. For more information, go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thank you for your support.